one yet. They're just um, in the back there in the foyer. So feel free to grab one of those. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. And then as you can see there on your handout, we're going to be looking at uh, Reformation today, evangelizing Roman Catholics. So that's our topic for this morning. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Gracious Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the merits of our faithful and perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the confidence that we have in him and in him alone. And so I ask that you would strip away any confidence that we have in ourselves, anything that we would seek to put forward as the basis for our standing before you, and that you would help us to continue to look to Christ and to persevere in this believing the gospel. And that even as we engage with Roman Catholic friends and family, that you would help us to be kind and compassionate and yet faithful to declare the word uh, of the truth and that they might believe it and be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for many of you, I imagine you grew up either in a Catholic family or you've got Catholic family members or close friends. Roman Catholicism is obviously a huge uh, world religion in that sense. There are millions of Roman Catholics around the world. And though the Roman Catholic Church has changed since the Reformation, so we just celebrated Reformation Day here a couple weeks ago. Reformation of the 16th century was uh, basically a battle between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and those who wanted to recover the true gospel as it is laid down in the Scriptures. And so the Roman Catholic Church, as we're going to see here, it's, it's gone through a number of changes and nuances. And uh, You've got Vatican Council uh, number 1, which happened in the 1800s, and then Vatican Council number 2, which was in the 1960s, and there was a lot of significant changes. So we're going to look at some of those things this morning. Um, but but I, what I would say is that the Roman Catholic conceptions of authority, of ultimate authority, and the basis for salvation, namely justification, are still the same, and they're very predominant. And so we must learn to defend the faith and evangelize our Roman Catholic friends and family. In an essay delivered at the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a society that actually Pastor Clint's going to be going to uh, this week, he's going to be delivering a paper there. But in an essay delivered just a couple of years ago by Al Mohler, who was then the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, currently president of Southern Seminary, what he did is he outlined four temptations that contemporary evangelical theologians face, namely fundamentalism, atheism, liberalism, and Roman Catholicism. So in his address, in that address, Mohler stated, to be an evangelical is to understand that one of the questions we'll always have to answer is why we're not Catholic. So that's a question that we all have to answer. Why is it that we're not Catholic? Why is it that you don't go to a priest regularly for confession? Why is it that you don't go to Mass regularly with you know, your Catholic friends or family? So why is it that we are Protestants and not Catholic? And so that's the question that I want us to take up this morning. Why are we not part of the Roman Catholic Church? And it's an important question for us. It's an important question to ask because Christians are commanded to pursue unity. Right? We're commanded to pursue unity with the body of Christ. And if you've talked with many Catholics, they'll often accuse Protestants of being divisive or 
in their kind of formal terms, schismatics. And so it's an important question to ask, why is it that the reformers eventually pulled out of the Roman Catholic Church and sought to basically get back to the the true church? Um, Because it is a biblical command to pursue unity, and yet, as you know, we're never commanded to pursue unity at the expense of the truth, are we? There's, there's lots of instances in the scriptures that you can see of the apostles themselves contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's a, so that there is by nature, the Christian is one who is supposed to be pursuing unity, pursuing it hard, being eager to maintain unity, and yet, in a proper sense, fighting the right battles, contending for the faith. And so we need to know then, biblically, what is that faith that we're defending? Why is it that we are Protestants and not Roman Catholics? As you've seen clearly in our apologetics course so far, definitions are important, right? You've got to define your terms clearly. So, to be clear, we are not part of the Roman Catholic Church, and yet... We've sometimes read from the front here the Apostles' Creed, which confesses the one holy Catholic Church. And the word Catholic there means universal. So what we recognize is that we are one local manifestation as a church body. We are one local manifestation of the church universal. Right? There's churches all over the world today that are meeting and they're worshiping the triune God in spirit and in truth. So we can recognize a proper Catholicity. It's actually a good thing for the Christian to do is to recognize we're, we're not on our own. We're not just doing our own thing, charting our own path. But we stand in a long line of believers in Jesus Christ who have confessed the same faith yesterday, today, and forever. And so it's just a reminder even that we ought to pursue that Catholicity in a proper sense, namely an u- understanding of the universal church. But that universal church is a church that confesses the same gospel. And that gets us to the issue. The Roman Catholic Church preaches a different gospel. And so that's the issue that we need to take up this morning. One of the great challenges with answering this question is that there are a lot of similarities between Roman Catholics and between us as Protestants, even doctrinally. So for instance, you talk with a Roman Catholic, somebody who knows the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and what do they say about the Trinity? Do they confess the triune God? One God, three persons? Yeah, they do. They confess one God, three persons. So they, they confess the triune God. That would be in distinction from, you know, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. So we share, you know, Trinitarian theology. Roman Catholics really emphasize the uniqueness of the Son of God, namely that he is God the Son incarnate. God the Son took on flesh and became a man and he lived a life and he died and he was buried and he was raised from the dead and he's coming again. So Roman Catholics confess uh, those things. Roman Catholics also speak a lot of grace. Uh, They talk about the necessity of Jesus for salvation. But as we'll see, they have different conceptions, different understandings of what grace is, how it is applied to the believer, and then how Jesus' work itself applies to the individual. So, so that's the first caution, is I would just give us that we've got to make sure that we're defining our terms clearly 
and that we want to represent the Roman Catholic view fairly, just like we want anybody to represent our view. One of the things I can't stand is when somebody caricatures, you know, the Reformed Protestant view, a Calvinistic view. is like, oh, well, you're anti-evangelism. Well, no, that's not true, right? But we, so we want to we do the same for others that we disagree with, in, whether it's Roman Catholics or wh- whoever it is. We want to represent their view fairly. That's the first caution. The second caution I would give is that there is a great temptation, I think, these days to minimize our differences. And, and I say that because as you look out in the culture, what we're facing today is, in some sense, is a little bit different than what the Reformation era faced. That is, I think that we are living in a neo-pagan culture. We're living in a neo-pagan culture. There's all sorts of barbaric pagan activity all around us. It's just so visible from all the, you know, sexual uh, insanity to abortion to uh, euthanasia to all these kinds of things. Just across the board, morally speaking, this is a dark age. And so the temptation for us in this secular age, as it stands in stark contrast to any kind of Christianity or even any kind of theism, is to minimize our differences. So the world has, in a sense, no place for God, no place for the transcendent, no place for transcendent moral order. So then what happens is that we say, well, they're not as bad as them, right? They're not as kind of off the rails as them, so why can't we just sort of link arms and minimize our differences. Let's just agree to disagree because we've got bigger battles to fight. Now, I agree. We've got some, there's some big issues to deal with culturally, but we can never minimize the truth, and, and what it gets to is the core of the gospel. How is it that sinners can be restored, to be, can be reconciled into a right relationship with the holy triune God? I mean, nothing gets more fundamental than that. So, as we consider then the insanity of our age and all that's going on out there, I would just caution us not to minimize our differences with Roman Catholics. And I think that was in part the motivation, some of you have heard of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement, which kind of started up in the 90s, was popular through the early 2000s. Evangelical, evangelicals and Catholics Together, ECT, was kind of the short uh, slogan, or the short acronym. So what they did is they surveyed the culture just as we were doing. They saw, you know, children are being murdered in the womb. Marriage and sexuality are being perverted by the state religion. Um, this kind of radical sexual perversion. And, and so what they did is said, well, we share so much in common. Let's band together and kind of deal with these social ills. Um, and, and what I would note is that, although I think that was wrong, I think it was wrong to just sort of minimize those differences. We can recognize that when it comes to our activism, as it were, socially, you know, political engagement, um, pushing back on, on some of these evils, there is a place, I believe, for what Francis Schaeffer and others called co-belligerence. So we're not allies in the sense that we have the same theology, but we are co-belligerence with those who have in a sense, a shared transcendent morality. And so, evangelicals and Catholics have partnered together at um, uh, pregnancy care centers and, and different uh, kind of ministries, such, as it were, like that. And I think that there's, that's a, there's a proper way to do that. And yet, as I said, we've got to be very clear, very clear, 
that we don't minimize our differences because it gets to the heart of how is it that we're saved. That, that, is, that was the debate that happened in the 16th century, and I think the Reformation continues today. There's still a need for these Reformation truths to be applied and for us to remind ourselves of them. So, I, I, as I said, I think that there's a great temptation, which is why there's the, that's the first point, the temptations for evangelicals is, is to caricature on the one hand, on the other hand, to minimize our differences with Roman Catholics um, because of all the social evils that have become more prominent. And I think that there's an additional attraction to Roman Catholicism, uh, to the institution itself, because what this, the sacramentalism, which we'll talk a little bit about, you know, all the different sacraments, the mass, kind of the, the short lingo would be all the smells and bells. It's a very appealing religion in a sense to the eyes. There's a certain kind of transcendence. You even look at their cathedrals, right? I mean, they're very, they're glorious. They're beautiful. And so what it does is that in a world that's kind of stripping that all away, it, it actually appeals to people in a sense that like, oh, there's something beautiful about this. So there's an, an aesthetic appeal to the Roman Catholic Church, which I would, um, I would caution people against. And then finally, I just say an, another temptation would be in our day and age, as many of you would know, there is a tendency among certain evangelical segments to kind of have what we can call an easy believism, or in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, cheap grace, right? So that, well, you just believe, and that I'm saved, and I can kind of carry on and do whatever I want, and it doesn't recognize the necessity of, uh, of following after Christ, the necessity of good works that, follow, that flow from faith, which we'll look at here later on. So that was... Um, that, that has been one of the reasons why several people have, as it were, crossed the Tiber over from Protestant evangelicalism to, uh, to Roman Catholicism because they look at it and they say, well, there's something that they, they emphasize the necessity of good works. Right? The Roman Catholic Church really emphasizes transformed living. And then they see in the church, uh, you know, Protestant churches, kind of this loose, licentious, lawless living under the name of grace, right? So I think that's a, that's a danger, and it ought not to be that way, but it is, it's something that then appeals to people when they see kind of the hypocrisy in some of the Protestant circles. I would argue that there's hypocrisy in the Catholic circles as much as there is in, or maybe even more, than there is in um, Protestant circles. Because as you know, you know, you talk to many people who identify as Catholic, right? But what they mean by Catholic is that their parents were raised Catholic, uh, therefore, they're Catholic. So they might show up to church, and they're like some Protestants. They're like Christmas and Easter Christians, right? You show up twice a year, do your thing, check the box, and you're good to go. Well, there's a hypocrisy in that as well. So all of this to say that while we can and should be thankful for our Catholic friends who share similar concerns for society, a view of the transcendence of God, in wanting God's law to even influence society, we must remember that there are foundational differences that still separate us. And so we need to consider those differences here now. Um, what further complicates our discussion, in addition to the fact that they use a lot of the same terms, what further complicates our discussion with Roman Catholics is that, as I was just alluding to, there's various shades of Catholics out there. 
There are some who would affirm, like in a very traditional Catholic sense, going back to the Council of Trent, uh, which was a council that was held kind of right on the back end of the Reformation in response to Luther and Zwingli and some of these other reformers in Europe. The Council of Trent, which sort of established official Roman Catholic dogma. And then you'd have, um, you know, Vatican I, which would be kind of clarifying a few things from Trent, and then Vatican II. So, so there's, there are those who would be like traditional Roman Catholics. Then you have some who would be nominal Roman Catholics, as I was just describing, Catholics in name only. And then what I'd say is that there's a number of progressive Roman Catholics. They're progressive in the, in the bad sense in that they are, they're actually trying to sort of rework the traditional view um, of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is especially post-Vatican II, so post kind of 1960s. Um, and, and when there was sort of an openness where they reopened the debate for different things that we'll look at here in a couple minutes. So the Roman Catholic Church, what I'd say is, there's all sorts of shades within there. And what's interesting is that in your conversations with Roman Catholics, you might come across and they'll say, well, we've got this kind of united faith, you know. And in a sense, they do have a, a teaching that comes from the magisterium. It's handed down, an interpretation of the scriptures. And yet what you see there is that even among kind of the, the upper echelons of Roman Catholicism is there's not actual agreement on what these things all mean. So there, there are actually a number of differences. It's not as Catholic as you might think it is. And that's just one thing I would, I would mention to them. So, for instance, think of the Pope, the current Pope, and the former Pope, which is an interesting conundrum that the Catholic Church itself has, is that right now they've got two Popes, in a sense. Right? The one, he resigned here a few years ago, Pope Benedict. Now you've got Pope Francis, which it's only happened, I think, once, one other time in kind of official, uh, during the official kind of Roman Catholic age since the Reformation. So what I'd say is that, for instance, Benedict, the former pope, he would fall into the category of a traditional Roman Catholic, looking back to the statements from the Council of Trent and Vatican I as being, you know, authoritative. Uh, he would also affirm Vatican II, but he wouldn't have been as open to interpretation as others were. So he stood for the traditional Roman Catholic view on abortion, euthanasia, marriage and sexuality, and of course the primacy of the papacy, the sacraments, the mass, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the current pope, Francis, he seemingly has much looser views, though maybe there hasn't been any official declaration. The way that he talks, it's much more open. It's almost a, almost a kind of universalism that he promotes. His favorite word, if you listen to Pope Francis, is mercy, which is a biblical word, obviously, right? Mercy, this undeserved favor that the Lord gives to people, that this compassion that he shows to them. But in his kind of conception of mercy, there's room for all sorts of different religions. And so he's loosened his language, at least, on the issues of abortion, sexuality, and I'd say even the doctrine of salvation itself. How is it that one is saved? And so what you see there is that even at these upper echelons, as I said, there's some divergences. There's some lack of clarity itself. So with that in mind, um, the Roman Catholic Church, especially since the Council of Trent, uh, has by and large promoted 
two, two kind of main different things that I want to look at this morning, and you see them there on your outline. A different view of the ultimate authority for the church, and a different view of Christ's work and how sinners are saved, how that work applies to us than we as Protestant evangelicals. So that's what we'll look at this morning. And the first there you'll see is um, the formal cause. So in the Reformation, the crux of the matter boiled down to what was referred to as these two causes. The formal cause, which was the issue of authority, sola scriptura, and then the material cause, which was justification, the doctrine of justification. How is it that we are restored into right relationship with God? That is, at the deepest level, Protestants and Catholics disagree on the nature of what serves as our ultimate authority and how we enter into right relationship with God so that we are saved from the wrath to come. So let's begin there. Then, as you see on your outline, the formal cause of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the formal cause. So, to be clear, the Roman Catholic Church affirms the authority of the Bible. It affirms the authority of the Bible, and in its official teaching, it, it actually has a high regard of the nature of the Bible as a divinely inspired so a, a God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, God-breathed, inerrant word of God. So again, we want to be fair to the Roman Catholic Church and their view. For instance, at the Council of Trent, which was in 1546, uh, with regard to the Bible, the teaching stated that the Roman Catholic Church receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and of the New Testament, seeing that one God is the author of both. Okay, so that's official Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, Vatican Council number one in 1869-70, it stated even more specifically as to the doctrine of inerrancy, that is the complete truthfulness of the Bible, this is what it stated. These books, being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that's 2 Timothy 3, they have God as their author, and contain revelation without error. Without error. So, f- from the earliest points, you could say that the Roman Catholic Church, you know, they held a high view of the nature of the Bible as inspired and inerrant and authoritative for the church. Now, during Vatican Council number two, which was from 1962 to 1965, some of these official doctrinal positions. Uh, specifically with, with regard to inerrancy, became a little bit more fuzzy. So the, kind of the, the lingo of Vatican Council number two was that they wanted to open the windows and sort of let fresh air breathe into the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to let the, the breeze kind of clear out things and clarify things for them, which led to some changes. So uh, the magisterium, which is kind of the official teachers of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope and his bishops in council with him. The magisterium nuanced the statement on Scripture from Vatican I to say that uh, the books of the Bible teach without error, quote, that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. So it's actually, when you look at these changes and when you look at terms, you've got to look at what they're kind of leaving out. So in this case, they specified for the sake of salvation. And what this did is that sort of this qualification cracked open the door to then liberals, just as it did for Protestant liberals, who would then say that the Bible speaks truthfully 
on spiritual matters pertaining to salvation, but not necessarily on matters of, let's say, history, right? So it kind of had this distinction. Well, the Bible can kind of speak to the spiritual, unseen realm, but when it comes to the historical uh, veracity, the truthfulness of the Scriptures, you know, there's some errors there because it was a, d- a document written by men. Um, and so there, there's, since that time, since Vatican II, there's been no shortage of debate. But, but what I want you to see then is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church has a high view of Scripture and inerrancy. So where's the beef then? Where's the beef with us as Protestants? Why is it that we are not Catholics? Can't we just agree to disagree? Well, where Protestants, us, and Catholics diverge is that in addition to the Bible, that is the Old and New Testaments, the Roman Catholic Church officially accepts not only the addition of the apocryphal intertestamental books, so there's a a number of books there kind of between the two testaments that were written between Old Testament and New Testament. They accept those as divine revelation, but they also accept what they call the sacred tradition. The sacred tradition that in their view was handed down to the apostles and their successors by oral tradition. So what you have is you've got the Bible plus. Okay, that's, that's the official teaching. You've got the Bible, but then you've also got the oral traditions of the apostles that were handed down to their successors, namely Peter's successor and, and thus their view of the Pope, the papacy. So the catechism of the Catholic Church states that sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit and holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. So you've got the tradition. Now, one other thing to add to kind of the Roman Catholic conception of authority is that uh, they have what is called the magisterium. As I said, that's sort of the official recognized teachers, the successor of the successors of the apostles themselves, who are then carrying that same unique authority as the apostles to discern um, and deliver God's revelation in Scripture and tradition to the church. So according to Catholic teaching, the magisterium is endowed with a divine authority to recognize additional revelation in, addition, in accordance with the oral tradition of the apostles and, and to give an authoritative and infallible interpretation of the scriptures themselves. So what, what happens is that this is why then the Roman Catholic Church has an official teaching is because the magisterium says, you know, this is what God says, take it or leave it. This is the proper interpretation given by the very Holy Spirit himself. Whereas what we recognize as Protestants then is that we can come to recognize the true meaning of Scripture because the Lord has given us his spirit, right, to understand the mind of Christ. So we can understand the truth, but there's no infallible interpreter of the Scripture, no, no human interpreter who is infallible, right? So even even the preachers, when you're preaching, or even when I'm teaching, we have this sort of Berean mentality, or we ought to, where you go back and you search these things, and that's exactly why Paul commended the Bereans. They were noble, right? Because they were searching the scriptures to see if these things were so. They didn't even just take it from Paul. 
you know, Paul was an apostle, but if Paul's stuff didn't line up with the other scriptures, then it wasn't to be accepted as God's word. So you see right there that the ultimate authority resides in the scriptures, not in any one man, not in any one human interpreter. So the Pope himself then is the chief teacher. He's deemed the successor of Peter and even called the vicar of Christ. Vicar just means a representative or a, a kind of an earthly substitute in a sense of Christ. And thus he, he is believed to have a unique authority even over the magisterium. Um, and so this is known as the doctrine of papal infallibility which stems from their teaching uh, on the apostolic succession of Peter as the chief apostle. So, their claims, what are their biblical claims for this? Well, their claims for adding sacred tradition go back to passages like John 16. You'll remember in John 16, Jesus, he promises to lead his apostles into all the truth. In other words, that there was more truth that they were going to be, that was going to be revealed to them after Jesus uh, was ascended. Um, And so they say, well, because there was more truth to come than what the magisterium has a responsibility of is figuring out what all that truth was both in the writings and in the oral traditions that were handed down by the apostles and of course then there's that passage in Matthew chapter 16 if you want you can turn there Matthew chapter 16 many of you will know this is a key passage uh, for Roman uh, for Roman Catholics Matthew 16 verse 18 Peter's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 18. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, how then do we respond to these claims that Authority resides in scripture and tradition as interpreted by these apostolic successors. So the challenge in defending sola scriptura, that is the authority of scripture alone, the ultimate authority of scripture alone, against the Roman Catholic view is that if you bring up the scriptures and show them that the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly about the Pope, they'll generally respond, okay, that might be true, but it's implied in scripture from Matthew 16, John 16, other passages, that there are also other traditions that the Spirit spoke to the apostles, these oral traditions that have been handed down that do not contradict Scripture but add to it. So it's, it's kind of a, a challenging field to debate on because they'll say, well, we've got the Scriptures, but yeah, there's more to it, right? It's adding. It's not contradicting. So all this to say is that when you're responding, when you're engaging with Roman Catholics, who accept the Bible as God's word, what that means is that you must work to show not merely that the biblical text does not teach something, like the magisterium or apostolic succession, but that the scriptures teach something completely different, actually go in the complete opposite direction. You must show that there is a contradiction between the scriptures and their so-called sacred tradition. Because if, if you can put a wedge in there and show that there's a contradiction between the two, well then they're forced to wrestle with well, which one is it? Because you're not going to have these contradicting authorities, right? So if we look back, for instance, to Matthew chapter 16, we do see that Jesus 
recognizes and even institutes a unique foundational role for the apostles, and I'd say in specifically the apostle Peter himself. Christ identifies himself, and Scripture identifies Christ as the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets are what? They're the foundation, right? Ephesians 2.20. They're the foundation that the church is built on. That is, the Spirit gave further revelation after Christ had ascended to these apostles as the foundation. And so, in that sense, Peter is a foundational rock on which the church is built. His teaching, his authority as an apostle is unique. And I'd say what Jesus is getting at here is that Peter's authority, even among the apostles, was a unique authority in that he was kind of a first among equals, as some have called it. Now, some evangelicals will say, what's the rock then that um, Christ is building his church on? Is it Peter's confession? Well, certainly there is an aspect of Peter's confession that you have to confess the Christ. That's all part of it. But I think what Jesus is doing here is he is showing that there is a unique role for Peter, but that it doesn't follow that that means that there's necessarily an apostolic succession. Because if, what you, if you flip over, so if you're ever stuck and you're confused, you just keep reading, right? So if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 18, you'll see there, very similar, Jesus talks about um, this binding and loosing, same language, and, and the giving of the keys. And so in verse 17, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, this is kind of the famous church discipline passage. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you uh, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the unique thing here is that, yes, Peter and the apostles have a foundational role, but then it gets expanded out to, uh, to all the disciples, and in fact, to all the church who, in a sense, carries a unique authority for, deter- for discerning who's in and who's out. You know, who's in the kingdom as a believer and who's out. And that's one of the reasons why even here, just functionally, we have congregational reviews as we have members coming in or as people are going out, right? There's, there's congregational reviews so that you guys are, in a sense, exercising kind of this discerning watchfulness over the church. And that stems from our view of the new covenant being that all believers have the Spirit. So I think we can recognize that Jesus, or that Peter has a foundational role as an apostle and even as a first among equals. You think of Peter's unique place. He was the first guy to kind of preach on Pentecost. Uh, He was very influential in the unification of Jews and Gentiles in the gospel. So there's all sorts of significant things. And yet, in Galatians itself, Paul confronts Peter. Paul confronts Peter right to his face, he says, because Peter was kind of shying away from justification by faith alone. And so Paul confronted Peter, which shows that there was Although Peter had a unique situation among the apostles, he wasn't over them all as in a kind of an authoritative uh, pope, a papal infallibility in that sense. Um, So what I'd say is that the Bible teaches then that the prophets and apostles, they're foundational for the church. The foundation is, 
is not still being laid. So there's not this succession of apostles, but rather we are then standing on that foundation. We are standing upon that foundation which has been laid here in the Word. And additionally, we do not see anywhere in the Scriptures that Jesus is promising a vicar or an earthly representative of Christ um, in the form of a man, but rather, Jesus says in John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus is telling his disciples, these apostles, that he is going to send the comforter, the helper. Well, who's that? It's the Holy Spirit, right? And he's going to give that to his people as a part of this new covenant promise. Uh, so Jesus can say in John chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the specific promise, again, we're not just showing that the Bible doesn't say anything about popes. We're showing that it says something completely different. It, it, goes us, it shows us in the other direction. In fact, it shows us that rather than the authority residing in one man, the authority resides in the Word, and then the Spirit of Christ himself is given to believers. He's given to believers, convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, um, which is what you see happening then in the book of Acts as these new covenant promises are fulfilled. So the Bible is not only silent on apostolic succession, it teaches the, the opposite. Christ continues to be present on earth, not through a vicar of Christ, but through the Holy Spirit whom he gives to those who believe in him. And Paul says that whoever has the Spirit has the mind of Christ and is able to discern spiritual things. And that's one of the kind of traditional distinctions in the Roman Catholic Church is that you have the teachers and they're the ones that are kind of, they've kind of got the corner on the market of truth. They can interpret the scriptures and tradition properly. Whereas biblically we see, well, no, it's, it's an amazing thing to know that we have the Spirit and therefore you, as you sit down and you read the Word, depending on the Lord, seeking His understanding, seeking to understand what is laid down here, what the authors intended to communicate, that you can come to know the truth. You can come to know it and therefore communicate it to others. So, uh, though we recognize there are teachers in the church who are gifted to teach and carry a certain kind of authority in the church. There are no infallible human interpreters. Rather, the Spirit is given who enables Christians to interpret the Bible accurately. Um, again, and that's one of the reasons why Paul would commend the Bereans. And so it tells us there that there's an emphasis on the Spirit and dwell believer being able to interpret the Bible truthfully. So, when engaging Roman Catholics then on this first point, you must get to the heart of their different view of authority since they formally accept the Bible as God's word plus, uh, plus tradition as interpreted by the magisterium. And we've seen, I think, just even at a kind of a 30,000-foot view that the Bible leads us in a different direction, that the Spirit of Christ is given that we might understand the word and that it is limited to this foundational role of the apostles. You don't keep laying foundations. Right? Any of you who have built a house, once the foundation is laid, you just keep laying foundation upon foundation and found, 
No, the foundation is laid, and, and then the church builds itself around that foundation, and, is, and we are taught to not go beyond what is written, right? So that's the first. The first is the formal cause. Second, I got a motor here. I got 15 minutes. Uh, the material cause, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Right, it's the five solas. You got sola scriptura, now justification. Um, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach is the way to salvation, the way to a restored right relationship with God? Catholics acknowledge that salvation is based on and flows from divine grace. So they'll talk lots about grace and mercy, uh, that God has to give grace. And they'll talk a lot about the incarnate Son of God and his work on the cross. So there's a reason why crucifixes are popular, right? They affirm the historical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The key difference, though, between Roman Catholics and Protestants is how Christ's sacrifice applies to us. That is, how is it that what Christ did is made effective? How is it that what Christ did comes to be effective for us so that we are actually restored to God and have life? According to Roman Catholic theology, we are justified by grace through the sacraments, through the sacraments of the church, through which then God, and this is key, infuses, okay? God infuses righteousness in us, thus transforming us and enabling us to merit salvation. Put simply, God justifies us not by faith alone in Christ alone, but on the basis of faith in Christ and the fruit of faith that he produces in us, which leads to an increased status of justification as time goes on. So, I want them to speak for themselves from their catechism. They say, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God. Okay, so far so good. And whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. So, how is it then that we become more righteous and thus merit justification in the end? Well, as I said, this is where, even from their own catechism, you see the sacraments are so important. The seven sacraments, which serve, as it were, as channels or conduits uh, of grace uh, that work in accordance with nature, that flow to the believer, transforming the person, thus accruing more merit, uh, and that is then the basis on which God justifies them now and on the final day of judgment as well. So three sacraments in particular bear distinctly on the matter of salvation. Baptism, penance, and the Eucharist, or what's called Mass. So the first sacrament, baptism. Right? In the Roman Catholic Church, you come, if you're in a Roman Catholic family, you're baptized as an infant, and when a purpose person is baptized, they believe that they are cleansed from the original sin and, re- and given new life. Uh, and so the result is what is called initial justification. So, to be clear, Catholics insist that Christ takes away sins by his death, but it's applied to the believer through the act of baptism. 
So it's this conduit then that through which grace flows to the believer. So baptism gets rid of original sin. But then there's the question about, well, what about all the sins that a person commits after they're baptized? Right? So you're baptized when you're an infant, but then you've got your entire life and you sin in many ways. Well, the Catholic Church teaches then here the sacrament of penance. So, for instance, if one commits a mortal sin, which is a sin that's worthy of damnation, uh, and by the way, there's not really a consensus even among Roman Catholics of what constitutes a mortal sin. Um, the person must go to the priest for penance. And so as they go, there's going to be a posture of contrition, of sorrow for sin, as well as a vocal confession to the priest, after which the priest will pronounce, uh, I absolve you, or in the Latin, te absolvo. And then they instruct the person as to certain acts of satisfaction that they must make. So you go to the priest, confess your sin, he absolves you, because he's, he has the authority from Christ to do that, they say. And then announces that there's certain acts of satisfaction that a person must do to kind of get rid of the rest of it. So maybe saying seven Hail Marys or required to give alms, you know, basically give more money to the church, uh, to the poor, make a pilgrimage or, or different acts that they must do. And these acts of satisfaction gain merit by which then a person is increasingly justified before God. So what you're seeing here then is that in the Catholic conception, uh, justification is a process that happens as God infuses grace into the individual and they are transformed. Okay? Um, so, so there's that, there's that position um, on, on penance. Of course, the central sacrament, I would argue, in the Roman Catholic Church is the Mass or the Eucharist, which is, um, you know, what, they would, what we would say is communion, except we have a different conception of it. So in their view, when a priest prays this prayer of consecration for the host, that is the bread and the wine, the literal bread and wine transform supernaturally and substantially into the literal body and blood of Christ. So that is um, the substance itself, or the, the, uh, the accidents as they call them, the bread and the wine, they, they still taste like bread and wine, but substantially it's transformed, which is then the view called transubstantiation. And it is then through this um, representation of Christ's sacrifice, as they call it, uh, in a non-bloody fashion, it's through this representation that then further saving and sanctifying grace flow to the individual, leading to their increased justification. So although Catholics insist on works as necessary for salvation, if you talk to a Catholic uh, who is familiar with the official teaching of the church, they'll tell you that they don't believe that they are saved by their works alone or primarily. They assert that it's the work of Christ that saves. However, uh, their, their works cooperate with grace. Okay? So their works are cooperating with grace and um, grace kind of supercharges it so that they would then be able to merit salvation, to the righteousness that is needed. And of course, there's a recognition even with their doctrine of purgatory that even the most, you know, even the best Christian is going to have to usually spend some time in purgatory to purge the rest of the sins. And of course, then they have the treasury of merits in their doctrine where, and this was one of, one of what Luther was so uh, driven nuts by, is that they were selling indulgences. Basically, the church was saying, 
You can pay money, and there's this treasury of merit accrued by Christ along with the merits of, uh, of other saints throughout history that then can be sort of, in a sense, applied or imputed to the believer, uh, even in purgatory. And so it's interesting. The Roman Catholic Church actually has a doctrine of imputation, but what they do is that they, I would say that they reject the sufficiency of Christ himself. That's the issue. So they, they say that there's a treasury of merits. Well, in a sense, we'd say that, I wouldn't use the, same, the term treasury of merits because it's loaded with baggage, but we would, we would say, well, yeah, Christ, he has merited all that we need for salvation, and that merit is imputed to us, right? So if you go, just even as we think of in response now, turn to Romans chapter 4. So the Roman Catholic Church conceives of justification as a process. The biblical view is that justification is an event whereby God declares the sinner just or righteous in his sight based solely upon the work of Christ apart from any works that we do. So Romans chapter 4 here, uh, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's key. Justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed, and then he quotes here from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And we could go on looking more. So you see there that Abraham himself, Paul's going to go lay out and say, was Abraham justified um, before he was circumcised or after? You know, the timing of when his works happened was important. And Paul's point is that, no, Abraham was justified. He was put in right standing with God, declared, uh, he was vindicated, declared righteous before he was circumcised. So before Abraham did any works that God commanded him to do, he simply believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is not going to deny the place of good works in the Christian life. And in fact, there's a necessity to them. There's a necessity to them. But the basis, what is the basis of our standing before God? Well, it's not anything that we've done. That's what Paul's saying. It's apart from the works of the law. And here, he's, and, and if you're thinking it's just circumcision, you see there um, in verse 2 that Abraham was not justified by works in general. It's a general term that kind of covers the entirety of works. Um, of course, there's lots that we could say. The doctrine of union with Christ, which Paul picks up in Romans chapter 5, that through one man's obedience, we are uh, given life, we are justified. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5. I'll leave you to read that. But we see here then that the basis for our standing with God is not our works, but is faith. Now, I want us to look at just one more passage with this and then consider 
the role of good works finally, and then we'll close. In, Ma- in Luke chapter 18, turn there with me. Luke chapter 18. I think it's really important because Roman Catholics, they say, well, we're not saying it's just works that were done from our own strength, but works that were created by the power of God himself, that these then lead to an increased status of justification. But very interesting in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus tells this parable. He says in verse 9, uh, Luke 18 verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the Pharisee, he's obviously proud. He's holding others in contempt. He thinks that God grades on the curve, right? You know, the comparison. I'm better than the average person, and I'm definitely better than that guy over there, that tax collector. Um, And so he's trusting in himself. but, But notice... In verse 11, how the Pharisee begins. He's, he's praying, isn't he? God, I thank you. So the, the Pharisee here, he's saying, well, I acknowledge that, God, you're the one who created these, me, these good works in me, in a sense. And yet, and yet, even there, what we see is that he doesn't go home justified. Who does? It's the tax collector. And, and what then is the basis for it. Well, it's the mercy of God that he he calls out and receives by faith, right? He's humbled himself before the Lord. So I think that's actually a a unique passage just to, when you're engaging with Roman Catholics who want to say, well, it's it's our works done in the power of the Spirit brought about by grace that then lead to this increased justification before God. Say, well, the tax collector or the Pharisee here he acknowledged his works were brought about by God. And yet, he doesn't go home justified. The tax collector who calls out for mercy, and upon that basis alone, that, that's the only reason he gets mercy is because he recognizes he's got nothing to contribute to his salvation. So Luke 18, that's a, a key passage. I would say another one just to kind of have in mind is um, the thief on the cross. Right? I mean, the thief on the cross what does he do? Well, he calls out to Christ to save him. He, he receives Christ as his Savior, as his only hope in, he didn't have much life left, but his only hope in death. And there was no time for him to be baptized, no time for him to go do penance, and, and notice what Jesus says. You know, oh, well, you're going to have to spend a, a thousand years in purgatory. No. What does he say? Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. So I think some of these passages, as you, as you read them, as you read the entire Bible, the storyline of Scripture, uh, you see very clearly that 
we are justified. We stand declared righteous. Our acceptance before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We could talk a lot more, and if I had more time, we could get into James 2. Maybe that's, that's probably worth a sermon sometime here upcoming. James 2, um, where, where you see this kind of intersection of, of faith and works. The point there is that true faith, what James is dealing with those who are saying, well, uh, I, I believe, but I can kind of do my own thing. I, I don't have to take care of those who are orphans and widows in distress. And James is saying, no, no, true faith is going to show itself in works. And on the final day, if a person comes, just like in Matthew 17, on the final day, when you're standing before Lord, the Lord, on the day of judgment, and you're saying, well, Lord, Lord, you know, I, I, I believed, I believed. And he's like, no, you didn't. Your, your faith was a phony, dead faith. It wasn't a living faith because the proof of it's in the pudding. There's no, there's no love. There's no good works that flowed from it. So true faith necessarily leads to good works, but it is not, good works are not the basis then for our standing before God. What's at stake in all this? Just la- lastly, first I'd say the gospel. We can't minimize our differences with Roman Catholics because we're tempted to with all the madness out there we think, oh, well, we've got so many similarities with them morally, quote-unquote. We cannot minimize the differences because the gospel is at stake. Paul in Galatians says that if anyone would preach another gospel, they are to be accursed. And the Judaizers talked about grace. The Judaizers talked about grace. Their issue, though, was that they wanted to add a little bit of their own stuff to it. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Well, in our day, Roman Catholic, it's Jesus plus baptism or penance or the mass. So the gospel is at stake. Secondly, assurance of salvation. I mean, in the Roman Catholic church, there is, there is no assurance of salvation. Why? Because it's, it's partly based on your cooperation with grace. If, it's, if your standing before God is based on your cooperation for grace, you're going to be a miserable person. You're not going to have the assurance of salvation. But if your hope is that I am reconciled to God on the basis of the perfect performance of another man, namely the second Adam, Jesus Christ, well, then you're secure, right? I'm trusting in him. I'm, I'm like this man in Luke 18. I'm calling out to him for mercy. I'm trusting in him, and I'm not looking to myself. Yeah, good works are going to flow from it, but my confidence, my assurance is that Christ himself has obeyed. And then, of course, I'd say that the final and maybe even the most important thing is the glory of God alone. Who gets glory in salvation when it's, you know, 99.9% God, but at least I've got the 0.1% that I can kind of say, I did a little bit of something. I cooperated. And Paul is very clear. No, there's no reason and there's no room for boasting as a Christian. You've got no reason because salvation from beginning to end is all of Christ, all of God, all of, all of the Spirit. I'm going to close in prayer. If you've got further questions, you can come talk to me after. Um, I just mentioned we are going to have a Q&A at the end of the semester, so December 18th. You can be writing down questions as you've been thinking about them throughout the semester, um, and hopefully we'll be able to get to the, some of those here at the end. So start writing those down. Let me pray, and then we'll get ready for the main service. Father, we thank you that you have justified us in Christ and that we stand 
without condemnation before you because of the perfect merits and obedience, the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. And so may that be our boast, may that be our confidence, and may it be the message that we announce to, to all, whether it to be to Roman Catholic friends and family or to uh, strangers on the street. We do ask that you would help us, embolden us for this task. In Jesus' name, amen.